Now we're going to get back to discipleship. So uh, I want to read a, a passage that is uh, unusual and impacting uh, and I think very appropriate for a, a sort of end of the year uh, taking inventory sort of a message. And that's what this is going to be about. It comes from Philippians chapter 3. Paul is writing in prison, uh, facing death at any moment. Um, the prisons of those days were not pleasant. They were dungeons, usually holes in the ground, rats, cold, uh, not much food. And he writes the, this letter to the congregations in Philippi, and it is his most joyful letter. It's full of joy. And in the course of writing this letter, Paul says this. He says, this one thing I do. It's not that phrase. This one thing. Here's the one thing I do. And you thought Paul did a lot of things. Well, apparently everything else Paul did was a variation of this one thing. There's one thing that I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward. Apexetomai is the word. Uh, it means to stretch. It has a connotation of stretching, painfully stretching. He's straining forward for something. I strain forward to what lies ahead, and I press on. Yoko is the word there. And, and uh, it, it means to press very hard. In fact, it's translated in certain contexts as persecution, to persecute, to press. And so Paul here is saying that with uh, enormous intentionality, passion, and, and, uh, and strength, he's straining forward, he's pressing forward. Now what's he straining and pressing for? Well, he's pressing for the goal, for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. And then he says, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. This should be your own life perspective. One thing that you do, pressing, stretching for the prize of the call of our great God and Savior, Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's talk to God for a moment about this. Uh, Lord, we're here in a lot of different situations, a lot of different circumstances, a lot of different backgrounds. We're all at different levels. But I am praying, God, that you, by the power of your Spirit, will be taking us wherever we are and moving us a step forward. I pray, God, that you'd use this message to confront us, move us, shake us, turn us upside down, uh, rattle our cage. Uh, Lord, um, you have placed inside of every believer in this room a spirit that longs to be radical. And Lord, the matrix of this world suppresses that spirit. But I'm praying, God, that you'll take whatever comes out of my mouth and use it to, uh, and anoint it to uh, uh, release the spirit of God inside of us and to transform us. We want to be transformed. We want to be changed. We can't do that on our own. We need you uh, moving in our life to do it, Lord. God, a, a human speech, a nice talk, turn of phrase, eloquent as it may be, is not going to do a thing. It'll be a tremendous waste of time. Uh, God, we don't have time for that. We want you, we need you to anoint this word and write it into our ears, our minds, our hearts, our lives, and change us. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. amen. It's uh, coming to the end of the year. We've got three days left until uh, New Year's. And typically, this is the time when people make New Year's resolutions. Uh, I will be different this year than I was the year before. About 50% of the population makes a New Year's resolution. The three most common ones, and you probably could have guessed this, are uh, weight. <laughs> I'm going to lose that 40 pounds this year. Sure, I'm going to do it, going to do it. 
I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to kick a habit. Smoking's the top one. I'm going to quit smoking this year. This is it. Boom. This is going to be done. January 1st is my last cigarette until January 2nd, and that will be my last one for sure. <laughs> and then there's always, uh, uh, and this kind of surprised me, but it, 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 the third most common resolution is about time. I'm going to spend more time with my kids. They're growing up. I'm going to spend more time with my wife. She's leaving me. Uh, I'm going to spend less time at work. Uh, you know, and, and so people make these resolutions, and I don't, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think, in fact, it's a good thing to take inventory of your life and to ask the question, how do I want to change? How do I want to be better? Now, the, the reality is this, that uh, by the end of January, almost half of those resolutions are broken or completely forgotten. And by the end of the year, over 90% of them are broken or forgotten. In fact, 94%. Only 6% of all resolutions actually have any kind of staying power. And I suspect half of those are gone within the next three years. And the point that this makes is that change is very hard for us. Change is difficult for us. We're creatures of habit. We're creatures of pattern. We get into a groove and it's hard for us to change how we are. Clearly, wanting to change doesn't produce change. Wishing you could change doesn't produce change. Promising you're going to change does not produce change. And even praying to change doesn't it, uh, itself alone produce change. The church is full of people who are praying, oh God, change me. And they pray that year after year after year after year. But see, there's a role that we play in this process. The trouble is it's a difficult role. Change is very, very difficult. Now, the reason why this is an important question to us is because we are always supposed to be changing. Do you know that? We're always supposed to be growing. We're always supposed to be stretching, straining to be more Christ-like. Whereas you can understand uh, people in the world who don't have a governing purpose to their life, they're just living in the here and now, that's kind of their consciousness level, you understand how they, they would just survive, they just get by, there's no real goal, no long-term goal, certainly no goal for their whole life that, that governs everything, and so they just survive, they just coast, they just get by. But see, believers are called to live on purpose, to think on purpose, to act on purpose, to have a higher call. In fact, Paul here is saying that this is the one thing that he does. Now, what's amazing here is this. Paul's in prison towards the end of his life, facing possible death at any time. We could understand if he took a moment out and thought about what lied behind him. He would maybe appreciate the good that he's done, the churches that he's planted, the number of people that he's saved, the letters that he's written. Uh, he, at he attained more in his life than, than most of us will, so maybe more than all of us put together. He'd accomplished much, been used by God as a pillar, foundational pillar of the church. He's been transformed to a large degree in the likeness of Christ. And it, one could understand if here at the end of his life he might just sort of uh, rest on his achievements. But he doesn't. He says there explicitly, forgetting what lies behind. Who cares about the past achievements? Who cares about the growth that has occurred? Oh, I look at what's ahead of me. And there's a prize there. There's a goal there. It's conformity to Jesus Christ. It's doing the will of God. And the one thing that I do is to put behind me what's behind me, and I'm pressing on. I'm pressing on. And if Paul, at the end of his life, with all the growth and the achievement that he had had in his life, if he still thought about one thing, and that was, how can he be more like Jesus? I suspect that most of us in this auditorium still have room where we can grow to be like Jesus. And according to Paul and according to the entire New Testament, uh, this is to be the center of our life, 
to be asking the question, how can I change to be more like Christ, to think more like Christ, to feel more like Christ, to interact more like Christ, to do more work for the kingdom? This one thing I do, it's my all-consuming passion, it's my goal, it's my vision, it's my life, it's my life purpose, my life agenda. You see, all of life is, if we're thinking biblically, it's, it's a school, uh, it's a school for eternity. And the goal, the purpose here and now is to build in our life uh, the kingdom of God. To see God's will done on earth as it is in heaven and most centrally to see God's will done in our mind as it is in heaven and in our hearts as it is in heaven and in our bodies as it is in heaven to become kingdom people. People who are fit for the kingdom, who are compatible with the kingdom of God. People who are embodying, increasingly embodying the kingdom right here and right now. Our life is our central project. It's a project that we're working on. It's a building that we're building. And what we are to be doing is to, at all times, as long as we have breath, as long as we have brain waves, we're to be straining and we're to be pressing with the intentionality of an Olympic athlete to build something in our life that is compatible with the kingdom of God. Uh, we are to be disciples. God does not call believers, he calls disciples. Believing is the prerequisite to being a disciple, but the goal is for God to get disciples. Now, a disciple is one who's being disciplined by another, right? The very meaning of the term uh, signifies what our mindset should be, what our intentionality should be. I like the word that Dallas Willard uses for disciple. He calls them apprentices, in, in his great book, Divine Conspiracy, he, say, he refers to a disciple as an apprentice. An apprentice is someone who studies the master, who learns from the master, who mimics the master. I, I worked as a, a masonry laborer one summer. I, I, I had so many different kinds of job to, jobs to try to get through uh, school. And I, I would take anything that would pay well. So this was a job that paid well. It was a miserable, miserable job. But... One has to eat, so I, uh, for a summer, did this. And my job was to mix the mud, and, you know, the mud is, is their, their, their uh, mortar, their cement, and, uh, and to, you know, lift up the bricks, put them on the, on the roofs, and build the scaffolding, and basically wherever they ordered me to do, I would do it. Um, now, th there was five ma masons that I worked for, and there was one apprentice. And what this apprentice would do is uh, he would just shadow the experts. He would kneel down alongside of them and he'd watch what they do. They put down a brick, he puts down a brick. You know, they, they, they shave off a little bit, they, he shaves off a little bit. They put down some mortar, he puts down some mortar. You know, they lap off the extra mortar, he laps off the extra mortar. Sometimes they'd say, oh no, no, you got to do this kind of brick this way and you got to make sure you do it this way and they kind of tweak it. He'd go, okay. And he'd, he'd, he'd always, his eye was always on them. And sometimes they get to difficult parts, you know, kind of a bending curve thing where, where you got to really be, have some expertise. And, and the apprentice would get a little bit in, intimidated, but the guy would say, oh, no, no, you, you, you can do this here. You just watch Watch me, just watch me. And, and he mimicked everything the experts did. He shadowed them. That's what an apprentice does. Day in and day out, he just did what he saw the master doing. And that describes the Christian life. Our eyes are to be fixed on Jesus, Hebrews 12, 2 says. 
And we are to do what we see him doing. He's won our hearts by dying for us on Calvary, by by rescuing us from the devil, freeing us from that bondage. Uh, And then he's given us his example, the example of his life uh, throughout the Gospels. And then he comes, as if that wasn't enough, and takes residence inside of us. I might say he kneels alongside of us and he says, let me teach you how to live. Let me teach you how to live. Let me, let me, let me uh, teach you how to shave off those non-kingdom parts of you and build a building that is fit for the kingdom. Because, see, what God's interested in is building, raising a people who've got a kingdom character, who think kingdom, feel kingdom, act kingdom. Uh, their, their life inside and out is a kingdom life. And the way this, this is done is by us seeing ourselves as an apprentice. We don't, we're not our own. We belong to the apprentice. And so we study him. We watch him. Uh, and as he leads, we follow. He puts down a brick, we put down a brick. He says, let's put on a kingdom brick of love. We put down a kingdom brick of love. He says, now let's work on a kingdom brick of peace. Let's clear away some of this debris of anxiety and lay a kingdom brick of peace. I'll show you how it's done. And then we do it. And then he says, now, now let's lay a kingdom brick of forgiveness. Let's clear away some of this debris of unforgiveness. Lay a kingdom brick of, of forgiveness. Oh, now it's time for some mortar of prayer. You know, let's just put on some, some of this cement of prayer and seal it all together. Okay, now it's time to work on this relationship. Now, now let's work on this attitude. And now let's work on this habit. And now let's deal with this kind of lifestyle. And brick upon brick. You see, we're to be following the, the master as apprentices. It is to be, Paul says, uh, the, the, the focus of our life. It's to build a building. It's our project to be working on ourselves, to have that kind of intentionality, to build in our life with the material that God has given to us something that is utterly, completely compatible with the kingdom of God. This one thing I do, I may be 10 minutes away from my death, but it's still the thing that occupies me. It's the center of my life. I don't think about it with the past. I, I, what I know is I need to work on this. I need, to, I, I need to strive for this. I need to stretch a little bit further, and I need to press a little bit harder. Now, now here's the reality, and I'm going to shoot straight here because part of my call is to, to, is to uh, be used to build disciples in this congregation. I, ha- I, have, I could have less interest in attendance numbers. I could have less interest in believers' numbers, except insofar as believers become disciples. What I'm interested in, because this is what the, the, the church is about, is raising up disciples, raising up apprentices, raising up kingdom people. And so I don't have time to, to pussyfoot around. I don't have time to, to you know, just kind of say it sideways and hope that you get it. I'm going to be very blunt here. Uh, we got to look at reality. This is the end of the year. Let's take an inventory so that we're different next year than we are right now. Here's what Dallas Willard says. Amen. Amen. The sad reality is that hardly anybody in the Western Hemisphere thinks like this. In the church or outside the church, it's very rare to find somebody who's got a life mission statement that they're actually living by, and they get up in the morning and they think, how can I fulfill better this mission statement than I did yesterday? Uh, Dallas Willard says there is an epidemic lack of passion for Christ-likeness in the church today. It's the number one problem. George Barna, who's this major statistician, uh, of religious affairs in, both inside and outside the church, uh, his findings really confirm what Dallas Willard says throughout this book, Renovation of the Heart. Um, he, he points out this. He's done a lot of surveys on born-again Christians, people who identify themselves as born-again, not just church attenders, but born-again, evangelical church attenders, and here's what he finds. Six out of ten don't have any uh, spiritual goal in their future. There's nothing that they're intentionally working on. They have a lot of goals. They have a lot of agendas. They have a lot of prioritizations, but none of them are distinctly spiritual. They're all basically what anyone in the culture would have. 
The four out of ten that have some kind of spiritual goal, of those, half of them uh, have only a very vague goal. I want to be more spiritual. I want to be more Christ-like. I want to learn how to love more. But there's no specific thing that they're working on. In other words, only 20% of all born-again believers have a specific thing uh, that they're striving for, straining for, pressing towards in terms of how they can become more Christ-like. 18, only 18% of all born-again Christians uh, would identify spiritual goals as the ones that are most important to their life. 15%, only 15%, identified success in life uh, in spiritual terms as opposed to material terms or, or other terms that the culture might, might use. Uh, two out of three said that they would uh, be more intentional on their spirituality, but they just don't have the time. And they blame time as the reason why uh, they're not uh, growing uh, spiritually. And as George Barna points out, this is really an illusion because, you see, we all have goals and we all have priorities and we spend time on the ones that are most important to us. So if, if it feels like we don't have time to be growing spiritually, that's simply another way of saying it's not that important to us. In other words, Dallas Willard is right. There's an epidemic lack of passion for Christ-likeness in the church today. This undoubtedly explains why, uh, again, George Barnard's surveys, and there's others that confirm it, uh, show that, that the life of those inside the church, born-again believers inside the church, uh, and the life of those outside the church is, is really not all that different. Statistics show that the chances of, of uh, a born-again Christian having a failed marriage is just a little bit less than that of the unchurched. Uh, the chances of a, uh, uh, a Christian uh, having sex before marriage or sex outside of marriage once they're married is just a little bit, a tinge better than the, the cultural norm. Uh, the chances of them cheating on taxes or on other business and endeavors is about the same as what you find uh, with non-Christians. Uh, the likelihood that they'll spend their resources in selfish ways is uh, almost identical with the culture. The culture as a whole, the average non-church person gives about 2% of their income away, keeps 98% of it for themselves. Among uh, uh, evangelical born-again believers, it's up a whopping 3%. Uh, and so it, it, it's pretty identical. In fact, in almost every category, those inside the church don't look distinctly different from those outside the church, except in one, in one measurable category, and that is that they go to church. Uh, about th three uh, out of every four weeks, a born-again believer will go to church. But in all other respects, they're pretty much the same. And if you're wondering why there is widespread suspicion or apathy uh, towards organized religion in the culture, I think you just found your answer. They say, oh yeah, you go to church and you probably feel righteous about it, but I don't see that's doing you a whole lot of good because we're pretty much, you know, I, I, this, we have the same kind of mess going on, don't we? You know, Gandhi said this. He wasn't a Christian, but he said this. He admired Jesus uh, greatly and tried to pattern his life after Jesus. Um, and it's sad that one of the greatest examples of a Christ-like life we have is, 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 is that of a non-Christian. But Gandhi said, if Christians actually live like Jesus, the entire world would be Christian within a year. And I suspect he was right. The greatest thing, the most powerful thing you can do for evangelism is to become a, a fully devoted disciple where the love of Jesus Christ, that Calvary type of love, and the character of Jesus Christ is increasingly shining through us. But it takes intentionality, and that's the one thing that seems to be lacking, on the whole, in the church in the, in the Western Hemisphere. Of course, there are wonderful exceptions, but it's speaking generally and broadly, this is the sad state of affairs. Now, why is this? 
There's a lot of reasons, I suspect, but there's two that I think are foundational. One is that the culture, the culture all around us uh, is impacting us far more than it should. We are, to too great an extent, conformed to the pattern of this world, the matrix that we've been talking about. We're conformed to it rather than swimming upstream and being transformed by the renewing of our mind. And one of the foundational aspects of our culture is that uh, you live for the here and now. There really is no overarching purpose. The idea of a person having a purpose that governs everything in their life, a mission statement that they live with day in and day out, a, a, a goal that structures everything else in their life, uh, that, that provides a, a valuation system that determines what they do and don't do, that idea is almost totally lacking in our culture. Look at any of the heroes on TV, the stars who get in the magazines, look at any of the sitcoms, and uh, you won't find anybody who, who is distinctive for a life purpose that they have. You watch Friends, uh, the sitcom Friends. And like all the sitcoms, it's, it's got some humor in it. It's got the morality of um, Amoeba, but uh, it, it's, uh, you know, got some funny things in it. But the people there, there's no purpose. They live purposeless lives. They just exist. Uh, they get up in the morning and, and they have little goals. I want to get a job. I want to get this. I want to get this lover. I want to get rid of this lover. I want to do this. And, and I want to tell a joke in the process. And, and, but that's the total substance of their life. And so it is across the board. What's held up to us is the ideal that it's normal to live life without a purpose. You see, it's just, we, you just live from day to day. And, and there's nothing bigger than yourself that drives you. There's no overarching passion. The last thing you'd ever have anyone do on, on a regular television show is what Paul's doing here, saying, there's one thing that drives me. Uh, there's one thing that defines me. There's one goal, one vision that, that sets in, in priority everything else in my life that is just absent. And the church, to too large a degree, has been absorbed by, intoxicated by the culture. And so... Our lives don't much match up to the life that Paul's holding up as an ideal. There's a second reason as well, and it's theological. There has been since the Reformation a tendency among Protestants, especially evangelicals, to see becoming godly, becoming Christ-like, uh, seeing your life as a project, uh, you know, conquering sin in our life and growing towards holiness. There's been a tendency to see that as sort of a superfluous thing, an incidental thing, an optional thing. It's, it's good that you do it. It, it. You ought to do it. But then again, it, there's nothing really at stake. Um, when you die, you're going to go to heaven anyways. And, and, and everyone's the same in heaven. And so there's no, there's no variation there. So there's nothing at stake in this. And so, of course, that tends to foster the mindset that we'll just wait around until we die. And that's what most Christians are doing. You, you believe, you got fire insurance, and so you wait till you die. And, and, and that's really it. We're just kind of taking up, oh yeah, we, we should do a little work here and there. And, and, and yeah, but you know, but that's kind of incidental. And especially in light of the, the strong, persistent, relentless cultural pressure, uh, cultural pressure to think of our lives as meaningless, as purposeless, well then of course you get a church that, in fact, doesn't look a whole lot like Christ. But see... Here's the thing we got to see. Ready? Paul is straining. Paul is pressing. You don't strain like this while you're at the end of your life. You don't press like Paul's pressing. You don't regard as being uh, inconsequential all the stuff in the past unless there's something at stake. You don't do that for an ornament. You don't do it because it's a nice option. There's something that's driving Paul. 
And see, what's driving Paul, the reason why he was so intentional at, at forming a kingdom life out of his life, was because he, he understood what we need to understand, and that is that God's program in the world isn't just to raise up believers. What God's program is about is to raise up disciples. It's to raise up apprentices. God's program isn't just to forgive people. God's program is to radically transform people. God's program isn't just to get us out of prison. God's program is to free us from a criminal mindset and a criminal character and to transform us to be like Jesus Christ so that we're no longer fit for prison, but we're fit for the kingdom of God. God's program is to raise up a bride, a, a, a people who, who, who reflect his love for them, a people who see him as, cent- as central to, to their life as he is to, to, to God's. Uh, God's program is to raise up a bride who thinks like Jesus, who looks like Jesus, who feels like Jesus, who's got the character of Jesus, who manifests the love of Jesus, who, who, uh, who, who, whose, whose idea of herself conforms to what Jesus thinks about her. God's not just doing the believer thing. He wants to raise up an army of apprentices who are doing the kingdom now. And as they do the kingdom now, God uses that to spread the kingdom. Gandhi was right. As we become disciples, people see the change and they want that change. What we need to understand, what Paul understood is this. There is nothing that is inconsistent with the kingdom that will get into the kingdom. See, there's a... Uh, everything about us that's not in conformity with Christ is left behind. There's no pollution in the kingdom of God. That's why Paul talked about, and this is rarely talked about, it just doesn't fit most Protestant theologies. But Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3 that there's, there's, there's a kind of a trial by fire that we'll go through. The work of each builder, he's talking to Christians now, not non-Christians, the work of each builder will become visible. For the day, that's the judgment day, will disclose it because it will be revealed with fire and the fire will test what sort of work each has done. This is not a salvation issue. This is a what have you done with your life issue. And the question it forces on us is this. What are we building now that will go through that purging fire of God's love? What are we building building right now that is compatible with the, ki- uh, the kingdom? What attitudes do we have that aren't a- compatible with that kingdom? What behaviors do we have? What aspects of ourself do we have that we know are not in conformity with Jesus Christ? What about you right now is eternal? What are you going to take with you? And see, there is a lot at stake in this. Uh, and that, 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 that at-stakeness is what drives Paul. He's reaching for that prize. He wants, he wants to take into the kingdom of God a mirror that's very big and can reflect the glory of God in a very big way. Uh, it requires an intent. The thing is this. For Paul, this is the singular focus of his life. This one thing I do. This is my passion. This is my obsession. I, I'm building a kingdom life. How can I be more uh, like Christ today than I was yesterday? And see, we're always supposed to be changing. Uh, but see, we, we, we often get distracted. Maybe we let ourselves get distracted if we're honest. Because the distractions keep our mind off the one thing that's needful. Uh, you know, so we, we, Christians get involved in a lot of issues and, and they read a lot and they, 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 they strain a lot and they press a lot, but not about this thing. Uh, they're really interested in finding out, here, you know, look at the books that are written, uh, how God, how you can use God and how you can use the Bible to, to get blessed a little more, to get a little bit richer, to make your life a little bit sweeter right here and right now. That's a, that's a big one. 
And a lot of people are, you know, get, get really involved in the issue of how do you discern God's will? You know, should I buy a green car or should I buy a blue car? And should I work at Walgreens or should I work at Target? You know, that, how do you discern the will of God? I don't know. Let's spend a couple of years studying that one. And, and then a lot of people are into, you know, issues of how do you interpret this passage and how do you interpret that passage? And here's what one person says, but here's what another person says. And, oh, I don't know. We'll spend a lot of time on that one. And, and, and what about these issues? We got, you know, uh, this view of predestination and that view of the atonement and this view of hell and this, that, and the other thing. And then we get into a lot of various issues, you know. Should Christians play the lottery or not? Okay, that, that's a big one. And, and, and should a Christian ever smoke a cigar? And should a Christian ever drink wine? And should a Christian ever go out dancing? You know, we, we need to write more books on that. And, 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 and of course, we get into the end times. The end times are really hot these days, man. It's selling big time. And so we want to find out, you know, whether it's a pre-trip, mid-trip, post-trip, pre-mill, mid-mill, pan-mill. You know, who's the Antichrist? What about this? How's the Middle East fit into the whole thing? And we get into all these kind of issues. And there's a place for those. I think they're good to discuss. And sometimes there's implications for our life. But here's the thing. You can have all the exact opinions on all of those things and still be as carnal as the most carnal person on the planet. Your heart can be totally far from God. You can be loveless, devoid of, of, of grace and compassion and full of prejudice. And yet you have the right opinions, you see. And as long as you keep involved in the opinions, well, then you never have to look at the issue that really matters which is what's really going down in your life. You see, that's why, one of the reasons why the, the carnal part of us likes those distractions because they're easy. They don't, ha- they don't impact us at all. We just have to think about them. That's why we like studying so much. But the change comes when our life gets impacted. I met a guy about a year and a half ago. Our paths just crossed momentarily for a business thing. And, and, and in, the court, my, in my short time of knowing him, um, he let out that his life was fairly messed up. He was living with his girlfriend, but his girlfriend was leaving him for the umpteenth time, and they'd had two kids together, but he wasn't getting along with the kids and wasn't getting along with her because he keeps on hitting her when he gets mad. But then again, she's really hard to live with, and if she would just shape up, he wouldn't hit her. And, and I mean, his thinking was so screwed up. And, and then he's got this drug addiction that's sapping all the, the finances, and, and he's got nothing to do with church, doesn't like that at all, and no fellowship whatsoever. And, and you know, just a, he's, he's got a lot of stuff going on. And somehow or other, it came out that I was a pastor. <laughs> and um, I, I don't like telling people I'm a pastor cause, because for this very reason. All of a sudden, he's like, time to backtrack, you know. <laughs> how, many, how many swear words did I say? How many, you know. Did, did. Well, then he brings out, I, I think it's a way to try to impress me. It's like, oh, you're a pastor. Then you read the book of Revelation. Why, oh, I love the book of Revelation. And I've read every one of the, the Left Behind series, you know, the Hell Lindsay's Left Behind series. And you know what? I think Saddam Hussein really is the Antichrist, and Gog and Magog, and, 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 and this is going to happen, and this other thing, you know, and I think we're, we're right towards the end times, and, and uh, it's all going to come crumbling down, and here's the right interpretation of Revelations 9, with the lotuses, the really helicopters, and supersonic ray guns that are going to come down. And, you know, and, and he watches Jack Van Impey uh, on, on the, you, you watch back, with, with Ursula, his wife, and they're just big eschatology people, Man, he's rattling off these facts to try to impress me. And I, I, I wanted to be as gracious and as kind as I could be. But in one way or another, I, I just said, Dude, 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 you're missing the ticket here. Uh, you know, God bless you on all your eschatology stuff. But 
But the, the, the thing, you're like Martha running around in, in a theological, eschatological, you know, kitchen trying to make sure everything's all straightened out when the one thing that's necessary is what Mary's doing and she's looking at the master. She's an apprentice and she's saying, how is my life supposed to be different, Lord? Teach me how to do it. The one thing that's needful, the one thing we need to stretch for, the one thing we need to press in on is, Lord, uh, change me. How can I be more like you? How can I reflect more of your love to the world around me? How can I be freed from the attitudes and and the, the stuff that, that are presently holding me in bondage. Because you see, here's the deal. If your goal, if the one thing that you do, if, if the center of your life is, is the project of building a kingdom person, if, you're, if the center of your life is to become more Christ-like, I assure you, the end times will take care of themselves very well. Thank you very much. You, yeah, they, you know, they, they, you're not going to have to worry about how you're going to die or how the world's going to end. It will take care of itself. You worry about being more Christ-like. And, and, and if the center of your life is to become more like Jesus Christ, you know what, yeah, this interpretation, that interpretation, it will come to you, and you won't get life from having one. You won't lose life for, for having the wrong one. It will just be there. It will take care of itself. And if, you're, if the center of your life is to be more Christ-like, you know, you'll have this issue, that issue. You'll think about this interpretation or that theological position, whatever, and you won't get any life from having one, and you won't lose any life for having the other. They'll kind of take care of themselves. Good to talk about, good to discuss. Let's even write a book or two about them, but don't make it the center of your life. The center of your life is the one thing that you should be straining for pressing in on and that's to be more like jesus christ amen. amen amen and what kind of car you drive whether it's red or blue or mazda or ford you know what i think god's a whole lot more interested in what kind of driver you are in whatever color car you got are you a kingdom driver or are you just one of these carnal worldly drivers that's what god's concerned about and well, should you work at Target or Walmart or whatever? You know what? Yeah, you, uh, you ask God to guide you, but, but, but what's more important is the center. And the center is what kind of, what, what kind of employee are you? Uh, what kind of worker are you? How are you in your interactions with people? Uh, is your life reflecting kingdom values? And, and, and uh, if the center of your life is to be Christ-like, you know, issues on whether you play the lottery or you smoke a cigar or have wine or whatever. You know, you're not going to get life from not doing it and you're not going to lose life for doing it. Uh, you, you, God will guide you on those things. And how he guides you might be different than how he guides somebody else. But the center is, how can I be more like Christ? How, how, how can I reflect his love more? You see, not, not, uh, change, we're always supposed to be changing, changing in that direction. We're never supposed to coast, to be comfortable, to relax, to just get by. So the question of all questions is this, how do we do that? We hear we're supposed to a lot, but how do you do it? And here's where I find Dallas Willard to be most profound. His book, uh, uh, Renovation of the Heart, that we've loosely been kind of interacting with here, uh, is, is very good at this. Dallas Willard puts forth a, an approach he calls VIM. V-I-M. The word actually comes from the Latin vis, which is, uh, means life, vigor, zest, uh, something like that. But it's an acronym that stands for Vision, Intention, and Means. And uh, Dallas Willard submits, and I think he's absolutely right, that there is no change unless these three, these three things are present. Wherever you have significant change in a person's life, you'll find these three things. Where you don't find these three things, uh, you will not have a person changing regardless of how bad they want to change, how, regardless of how bad they wish they could change, whatever promises they make. Unless all three of these are present, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. There needs to be a vision. There needs to be an intention, which is a resolution, a decision to bring the vision into reality. And then there needs to be the means, which is just asking the question, uh, how, what, what about my life needs to change? Uh, what needs to happen for that vision to become reality? Let me give you an illustration. When I was in graduate school, uh, the hardest thing for me to learn, 
on the whole, I love school, but the part I didn't love was learning languages. I don't have a language brain. That part of my brain is just a little bit slow. I, 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 I haven't yet mastered the English language, uh, and I'm supposed to learn these other languages. Um, uh, when I came to uh, having to learn Greek, it was a requirement, I, um, I was really intimidated. But I knew I had to do it, so I got a vision. Uh, and, and I don't mean a spiritual, but I, I mean just mean a picture of myself. Uh, this is faith. You hold a concrete, substantial, vivid reality in your brain about the future that you are going to believe to come to pass. And so I get a picture of myself uh, with Greek, knowing Greek. I, I could see that. And see, knowing Greek would allow me to be a professor, which is what I want to do. I don't want to be an electrician or a plumber because I'd be terrible at those jobs. I want to be a professor at this point in my life. Uh, and, and so this is a requirement for that. So I get a vision. See, the vision is necessary because that's what draws you. It's what motivates you. Get a picture of what life would be like once this process is complete. I could see how it would give me more insight into the Word of God. If I could know Greek, I wouldn't be so dependent on the commentaries and yada, yada, yada. So I got a vision. I want to do this really bad. So then I make a decision. I'm going to do this. this and, and that's what the intention is. It's, it's the decision that this is going to happen. It's a moment of truth thing. This is going to happen. And then comes the means. And this is the hard part. And this is the most neglected part. What needs to happen in my life if that, in fact, is going to become reality? Um, what do I need to make this into a reality? In my case, I needed to go to school which means I need to have money to go to school, which means my wife and I are going to be living very meagerly for quite a while, which means I better tell her this ahead of time. Uh, I, I need to take a class on Greek. I need to buy books on Greek. I need to, you know, go through the discipline and the study that's going to be required of me uh, in order to do Greek. Uh, and in my case, that was quite a lot. I took a summer intensive class on Greek under, with Carl Holliday, this, uh, this drill sergeant. The guy was, must have come from the military. Uh, and and uh, we would have eight hours a day of Greek where he would just drill us and drill us and drill us on all the endings of the verbs. I can to this day recite the endings of the me verbs, my, sai, tai, matha, sata, and tai. And, and, you know, we'd go down this thing over and over and over again. It was like going, belonging to some kind of Greek-speaking cult or something. And it was just getting brainwashed. But that's what was necessary, eight hours a day. Plus, I had to do homework four hours a day, which means I couldn't work that summer, which means that as poor as we were, we're going to get a whole lot poor. Uh, you know, there's sacrifices that are going to have to happen for this, and aggravation and tension and, and all of that. But I was willing to do it because I made the decision that that vision I've got is going to become reality. See, it would not have happened without that. So it is for every decision in our life. If you, if you have vision without intention, what you've got is a wish. Wouldn't it be nice someday if I was like that? I guarantee you it will never happen unless you decide to do it and then say, what do I need to change for that to happen? Even a vision with intention. You can say, I'm going to do it. But if you don't change the things around you, it's just not going to happen. Four years ago, I had a vision of playing the penny whistle. I love the penny whistle, that little Irish... You know, uh, uh, the Titanic. I, I saw the Titanic. I fell in love with that, that sound. It's so, it's so mystical and whispery. And I thought, oh, it'd be so cool. And a lot of the songs at our church, I think, especially those Irish-sounding ones, you know, knowing you, the, the, those kind of Irish hymns we sing, oh, with a little penny whistle in the background, it'd be so cool. So I, could, I saw myself. I got a vision. I'm learning the penny whistle. And, and, and I, I'm playing in the worship team. I never told Norma about this, but... Um, <laughs> And I, I could just minister, I could play on my own, I just love that sound. So I got a penny whistle. I even got a book. Now comes time to start learning that stupid thing. <laughs> hey, ain't easy. I practiced one time. 
funny, it it, it doesn't sound quite as good when I do it as when the Titanic movie had it, uh, or when when it's on Braveheart. And it's like, okay, this is going to be a lot of work, and in this case, I got other things I got to do. I I don't have time to learn. Anyone want to buy a penny whistle? I've got one. Um, you see, without the vision, without the intention, without the means, if you have two of the three, it's just not going to go. You need all three. So the question I want us to seriously be asking ourselves here this morning is this. Number one, what is the vision that God would give you? Uh, what area are you, or areas are you supposed to be working on? We need a general vision for who we are in Christ, our identity in Christ. Um, you know, uh, what we look like when we're perfectly manifesting the kingdom, that's who we really are because of the cross. We need a general vision of who we are and run movies of that in our mind. That's about having faith. But we also need specific goals in our life. What area of your life right now is not in conformity with Jesus Christ that God would want to work on? You can't work on everything at the same time. Pick out an area or two. Let God lead you in picking out an area or two. Get a vision for what you will look like when you're freed from that. Uh, you know, uh, for me right now, God is saying, I want to spend more time with you. I want to spend more time with you. And I, I'm saying, see, part of my, you, you got to, this is the means thing. You got you to ask the question, do I really want this? Is this, am I in agreement here? And there's a part of me that says, I don't want to spend more time with you, God. I mean, I love you and everything, but I'm a busy guy. There's a lot of things to do. And I already spend a lot more time than most people do. For crying out loud, why can't we go on a graded scale here? You know, I, 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 you know we always like to do that, compare ourselves with others and see what God requires of me is not what God requires of you. We each answered our own master. Read Romans 14 on that. Uh, you know, I, I said, Lord, I talked to you all day long in the car. I'm always talking to God. People think I'm a looney tune, but he's saying, no, I want more quality time where you focus on me, and more importantly, I can focus on you because, I, dude, I got some things I want to work on. You see, okay, so, so now I got to add, you know, th- th- that's the vision. I can picture what it would be like for me to be walking with more prayer in my life, and I can begin to see how it would give me a greater profoundness and insight into the word and, and things of that sort. Uh, what is the area that God would want you to work on? Some of you maybe need to work on the, a time issue with your family. Or are you really, are, are you as godly a parent or godly a spouse as you could be? Some here maybe need to work on an attitude, rage issue or forgiveness issue or maybe just noticing uh, people who are hurting around you kind of an issue. You tend to be too self-centered or, or, or maybe for some of you it's, it's, it's becoming a better financial steward. Get a vision for what you would look like if this came to pass. Make it attractive because that's what will motivate you and pull you. And then number two, there's the decision. You decide to do it. This is going to change. Now, it's, it's scary sometimes. You'll probably have voices saying, you've done this before. No way. No how. You've been like this all your life. You think you're going to change now? But see, here's where we just got to know. We're not alone. Uh, with God, all things are possible. He's not going to do it for us. But, but on the other hand, he is going to do it with us. And so, so we, we, you can be different. Know that. You make a, a, a decision. This is it. You put it on the front burner. Because if it's not on the front burner, if it's, if it's not the, the, the foremost priority, I guarantee you it won't happen. Make the decision. I am going to now walk in sexual purity. I'm going to get free from that addiction. I am going to be praying more. And then comes the means. What now? And this is the tough one. What needs to change in your lifestyle for this to happen? What needs to change? If you don't change your environment, you, you won't change. You, you'll fall back into it. We're creatures of, ha- we're, we're, we're creatures of habit. We've got a strong autopilot where you have momentum going. The only way to block it is if you change things around you. Ch- what needs to happen in your life for this vision to become a reality? 
Don't kid yourself. Look at it squarely. What adjustments do you need to make? If I'm going to pray more, you know what? I might have to go to bed a little earlier, which means I probably can't watch the evening news because that always leads into nightline and we never you know, turn it off, which means that if I'm going to watch the news, I've got to do it earlier, which has implications for the rest of my day. I've got to look at this thing here, okay? If I'm serious about it, I've got to look at it. I've got to write it down. Uh, you know, and that and, and, uh, means I got to go to bed a little early, get up a little earlier, or, or what have you. Uh, if you're going to become a better financial steward, uh, you know, ask God to lead you in this. And then what, what do you need to do to change your spending habits? I guarantee you they will not change on their own. You can pray to your blue in the face, but until you make a change, it's not going to change. Maybe you need to get a ledger where you write down everything that you spend and, and, and see how much you actually goes out to fast food and how much goes out to things that you really don't need. And, and maybe you then need to make uh, different decisions about the kind of car you're going to drive or, or what have you. But see, unless you make those decisions, I guarantee you, you'll fall back to where you were. It's always important to tell someone. You get a vision, you get the intention, tell someone about your decision and invite them in to help you walk with this. God never, ever intended us to walk in the Christian life alone. The project of my life, you're part of the project of my life and I'm part of the project of your life and we need to be involved in this. We need to have people who walk with us who will keep us accountable. How you doing on that brick? How, are you watching The Apprentice? How, how's, it, how's it getting laid? You know, uh, is there something I can do to help you with this? And maybe that if, you're, if the area you need to work on is sexual purity, the Lord will tell you there's certain areas you shouldn't just go. And tell someone uh, to, to help keep you accountable. You go to certain areas, maybe other people can go there, but when you go there, neural nets get activated and you, go, you, you end up going into a loop and, and end up in places you shouldn't be. So maybe you can't go to certain movies other people can go to because you see one scene and it activates certain buzzers and bam, you can't get it out of your head and that sends you into a loop. You've got to know that about yourself. Be honest and set something in place to keep that from happening. Some people here need to lose the internet. Yeah, you see, because uh, while some people can withstand that temptation, others can't. Be honest with yourself. You're just kidding yourself if you say, oh, I have a vision that I'm going to be you know, free from this. I, I decide it, and yet you don't, do, you don't change anything in your environment. We always need to be changing our environment because we're called to always be changing. And, and ask the question, what needs to happen in my life for this vision to become reality? And know this, there's nothing I'm going to say the rest of this year that's going to be more important than what I just said. This, this, this is the one thing. How can I be more Christ-like? Everything else will be a modification of this message. How can I be more Christ-like? If we're serious about anything, we've got to be serious about this. Would you close your eyes? And we're just going to take one minute to do this. I want you right now to ask God to begin to give you the vision that you're supposed to have for this upcoming year. How are you supposed to be different a year from now than you are right now? Maybe different tomorrow than you are today. And when you get that, and I assure you, we all have areas that God's trying to tell us on. I, I, if Paul had them, you can bet we've all got them. And then secondly, will you decide to do that? Are you willing to decide to do that? If you're not, be honest about that and then ask God to change your motivation because if you don't decide it, it's going to do nothing. Resolve to do that. This is important. You want to have a life that you can substantially take with you into the kingdom. And then thirdly, ask the Lord to show you and use your own common sense about what needs to happen, what needs to change. How has your lifestyle got to change in order to bring this vision into reality.
Work in our hearts, Holy Spirit. I'm going to close with this prayer. We're going to sing the prayer. It's our closing prayer. It's a song we sang a little bit earlier, Make Us Holy and Pure. I want us to, with this in mind, sing this song as a prayer to the Lord. As we do so, I'd like to invite the uh, prayer team to come forward. And if you want to linger for a little bit and pray, uh, I encourage you to do that. Maybe we just want to come up here and kneel or stay in your chair. But ask God to give you, uh, to show you, maybe you already know it. I think most of us actually know the area that God, if we're honest with ourselves, we know what God wants to work on. Maybe you need to sit and savor that a little bit. If you're here this morning and you've never surrendered your life over to Jesus, maybe you've believed that he's, he's true, but you've never really made that first act of surrender. I encourage you at the end of the service over to my right, there'll be a, a uh, in your left, at the this table, people who will be happy to explain to you what the first step is in becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ, in building a life that is fit for the kingdom. Let's stand and close with this prayer. Make us holy and pure. Make us holy and pure. Hallelujah. The altar's open if you want to pray. Stay in your chairs if you want to pray. Up here if you want to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. Go out and be radical disciples in Jesus' name. See you next year. Amen.